On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Taylor Sear about the topic of free will and foreknowledge. So we cover all sorts of topics like just what is free will, what is foreknowledge, and what is this dilemma that is supposedly generated by these two claims? Uh, what are the p- potential responses that have you've seen across the spectrum of history and that you see in contemporary literature? Which ones are most persuasive or possibly mo- least persuasive? Where in the world does Jonathan Edwards fit in with Boethius and Occam and Molinism and all the things that go on here and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am alone today without Brandon Askew, uh, your favorite co-host. But we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for serious church. And if you've known us for any length of time, you'll know kind of the spiel that I give. But if you're new, I want to let you know that we try to, in this serious thinking, cultivate a sort of intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And really what that's just trying to do is trying to balance uh, the the meekness of wisdom that we find in Scripture with uh, rigorous uh, thinking that goes on, especially as portrayed in things like analytic philosophy and uh, classical reformed scholasticism and medieval scholasticism, where you see a very serious um, layout of arguments and thought process. We we really prize those sorts of virtues when it comes to thinking. We're trying to promote them. Uh, When we first started, it was really just, hey, we want to help our... I mean, me and Brandon are both Baptists. We wanted to help people to actually think and define thinking as a good thing and not a bad thing. But as we've grown, we've wanted to just to, to build these two things together. So I always try to remind people that's what we're trying to do. We're not perfect at it. We, we fail a lot of the times, but we're trying to learn and do better at it. But today, uh, I'm looking forward to reintroducing you all to Dr. Taylor Sear. He is a professor at uh, Sanford University, in, and he does all sorts of metaphysics of free will sort of stuff. So that's what we're going to be talking about. If you're familiar with the show, it's been a while, but we had uh, Taylor on the show to talk about uh, free will related topics, especially like manipulation sort of arguments when it comes to determinism and things related to that. So I'll make sure to link to that so you can go check it out because uh, that was a lot of fun as well. And he also does have a podcast I want to plug at the beginning just so you don't forget. Go ahead and go find, search on, if you're listening on Apple, you're listening on Spotify, search the free will show. Um, he does excellent interviews um, related to all topics related to free will. So I think a lot of our listeners are interested in this sort of topic and you're going to get the full gauntlet of material on that. And it's very much a atmosphere of we want to learn and educate, not necessarily. I just want to defend one view. Um, I think me and Taylor are on the same position when it comes to what free will is, but um, that doesn't mean we can't learn and understand all the different models of free will and, and how to think through that well. So go check that podcast out. Now, today, talking free will and the problem of foreknowledge, which again, if you're a dedicated listener, you would know that we've talked to Roger Turner in the past about this, uh, who would take a different view than Taylor on some things. So I think this will be fun to sort of cover some of that ground again. So Taylor, before before I jump in, uh, for those who aren't familiar with you, I mean, I know I said that you're at Sanford, maybe give a little bit of background on just how you got into free will, why, why it's something that you find interesting 
you wrote a dissertation on it. I mean, you spent years studying it and you still want to keep studying it. What, what's so fascinating about free will to you? Yeah. Um, thanks. Thanks for the introduction, uh, Brandon. And, um, Sorry, I just called you Brandon. Uh, Jordan. Brandon's not here. I miss him, I <laughs> guess. Right. Maybe he's my favorite. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for the introduction, Jordan. Um, I, um, what do people need to know about me? I guess I, I studied at uh, some places that are sort of known for having a bunch of philosophers who work on free will or related topics and philosophy of action. So I started out at Florida State, and then I went to um, University of California, Riverside, um, and worked with people like um, Al Mealy and John Martin Fisher, who have written a lot on uh, free will. Um, I'm at Samford University now. I'm going to be teaching a class on free will, an upper level undergraduate philosophy class on free will, running that for the first time this fall. So I get to kind of bring together my research and teaching interests, um, even outside of my intro to philosophy classes. Um, now, how did I get into uh, free will? I guess probably... I've ever since I was pretty young, I, I grew up, you know, going to church and, um, you know, I, I was probably destined to be a philosopher, but, you know, as soon as questions about, you know, providence and God's foreknowledge. And I remember, especially in uh, middle school and early high school, being fascinated with the idea that, um, God might not be inside time like us. He might be outside of time. I guess I've always just been kind of gravitating towards those questions about divine and human agency and how they're related, how one might pose a threat to the other. So it was probably thinking about God and the, the foreknowledge problem that we'll talk about today that first kind of got me interested in free will. Um, the, the first time I read a, a kind of, you know, a paper in philosophy on free will, it would have been a classic paper that maybe we'll talk about, um, some point during the interview by Nelson Pike, a paper from the 1960s called a divine omniscience and voluntary action. It's kind of a classic paper and one that gets anthologized in philosophy of religion textbooks. So I'm, I'm 95% sure that was my first like free will paper that I read. And it was for a philosophy of religion class when I was an undergraduate. Um, but then when I went to Riverside to work with uh, John Fisher, um, my first year there, I was like, I need to, I need to read all the stuff on freedom and foreknowledge, you know, as someone who's, who cares about that issue a lot and, you know, working with someone who's written a lot on it. And so we did an independent study one quarter, my, my first year there and just read a lot of the classic papers kind of focused on, um, a lot of this stuff from the, I guess from the sixties onward, but there was a lot in the 1980s on Occamism, a view that, it's named after William of Ockham, um, which kind of had its heyday in the 80s and 90s, and then since then has waned a bit, although there are probably still a lot of Ockhamists out there. But anyway, that's I kind of focused on that, and then we talked towards the end about some recent developments, including a view that I think has become maybe more popular than Ockhamism. I think it's the view that Roger Turner defends and maybe talked about, but it's the idea that kind of crucial to figuring out this puzzle is appealing to the, um, the notion of dependence. So sometimes people just call it the dependence response. Um, anyway, so I've written some on that, um, both starting way back then in graduate school and then a lot more since then. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of how I came to be interested in the topic and then a little bit of the academic background. Awesome. So as we get into the topic, I want to just start baseline can you sketch for me a little bit of sort of like what is freedom? How should we like 
maybe a framework for thinking about freedom, the different views, and then we can get into the freedom and foreknowledge problem. You can set that up because I think we have a lot of listeners who are Calvinists. And at least for me, I know when I was like in this sort of cage stage Calvinism, there was like two views. You either believed in free will or you didn't. And it was very unnuanced and just so help us think through what are the real positions in this sort of area. Yeah. You no, know, I think, I think it's good to ask that question and, and you have to, you have to make certain distinctions too, between, you know, debates about say causal determinism and free will, divine foreknowledge and free will. Maybe even this could be a separate issue, but providence and free will. And it could be that you think that one of those things I just mentioned, causal determinism, divine foreknowledge, uh, and, and so on, that those are a threat to free, that one is a threat to free will while others aren't. And so you could think some of them are compatible, some of them are incompatible, and the terms can, it can be confusing to keep track of, of what's going on. So yeah, it's good to, good to get clear on what the, what the terms mean in this context. So in almost all of the papers on freedom and foreknowledge since that 1965, I think it is a uh, paper by Nelson Pike, pretty much everyone has taken freedom or free will to refer to um, the freedom to do otherwise than what one actually does. So sometimes people call this the ability to do otherwise or uh, leeway freedom. Uh, I like to use the metaphor that John Fisher has used in a lot of his work of going through a garden of forking paths. So the idea is like, when you're going through a garden of forking paths, you come to a, a fork in the path and you can either go left or you can go right. It's up to you which way of those open paths you go, which path you go down. Um, there's leeway in the sense that you could have gone the other way when you actually went one way. So that's the sense of um, free will or freedom that is at issue in, in this debate. Now, why I care about the ability to do otherwise or the freedom to do otherwise. Well, a lot of people have thought, and this is true of a lot of people in the Christian tradition in particular, a lot of people have thought that in order for us to be genuinely accountable for what we do, morally responsible in the sense that we could deserve um, praise or blame for what we do, uh, we'd have to have this kind of freedom, right? This Sometimes you'll hear this um, principle, the principle of alternative possibilities invoked to link moral responsibility with this notion of freedom, leeway freedom. Um, so that's one reason that a lot of people think it's important. People think it's important for other reasons too, but um, you know, not everyone accepts that there's that tight connection between responsibility and this sense of free will. I'm one of those people who reject uh, that principle of alternative possibilities so it might be that you think, yeah, um, at the end of the day, divine foreknowledge, it, it takes away this kind of freedom, this free will. And you might think, well, that's not so bad <laughs> because you think this kind of freedom might not be essential to, you know, the idea that we're really accountable for what we do and, and so forth. So uh, that's one quick note about what free will is. And then foreknowledge, I mean, generally, this is just knowledge about what will happen in the future, but um, the puzzle arises from it being divine foreknowledge. And the idea here is that God is eternal in that at the very least, he's always existed. So he existed, say, a thousand years ago, but at all other times in the past. Um, and at every time that he exists, uh, he has comprehensive foreknowledge of what will take place in the future, right? He knows everything that will happen. So, you know, a thousand years ago, he knew that we'd be having this conversation now. Um, 
In addition, it's usually taken for granted in this debate that um, God's infallible. So uh, whatever else it means to be God, uh, God can't be wrong. He can't like believe something and then turn out to be wrong, turn out to have a false belief. Um, so maybe I'll use a different example, right? Uh, I had pizza for lunch today. And so given that God is eternal and, you know, omniscient and infallibly so, he's, uh, he knew infallibly a thousand years ago that I would have pizza for lunch today. So those are the two things, free will in the sense of leeway freedom and then um, divine foreknowledge. And it looks like there's a tension, <laughs> let's say, uh, between those things. Now, uh, before we jump into it a little bit, for those who are nerdy about philosophy of time, would it make any difference at the start which model of time that we take? So let's say we take um, a B theory of time where it's, there's, I guess, what it, now I'm forgetting which one's which. The A theory is what? Presentism, where only the present exists? Yeah, those usually go together. And then, and then yeah. the B theory would be more along the lines of like at, like the past and the, and the present and the future all equally exist. Would, yeah, that's Would right. that uh, have any impact on this problem getting off the ground? Yeah, there. That's that's a really good question, and uh, it opens up a whole can of worms. And people will disagree about how to answer. I mean, I should basically answer all of your questions with that like prefatory remark. But anyway, uh, I don't think, given what I've said so far, that it makes a difference which way you go. I mean, I think, you know, when we suppose you just watched a time travel movie you know, and you're thinking about everything that happened in the movie, it's easiest to sort of picture it all, to keep track of all the events in the time travel story. If you just imagine the past, present, and future of that story all being equally real, you could kind of chart it all out. And it might be the same with keeping track of like how God knows everything. There's all this future stuff that's that's real and he he's already knows it because it's, well, it's there for him to see. Um, but I think even if uh, the future isn't real like the present is. And even if, you know, yeah. So even if presentism is true, as long as you want, as long as you can find a way of making sense of there being truths about the future, like that it's true that, um, you know, I'll have a smoothie for breakfast in the morning, say, uh, then you'll want to make sense of God having knowledge of those truths, even if, you know, tomorrow doesn't exist in the same way that the present does. Um, now, what the reason I love the question, though, is because as soon as you start saying, well, there's truths about the future, but the future doesn't exist like the present does, you start to, ask, I mean, that immediately raises this question of, well, how could there be truths about the future if the future isn't real? Like, what makes that true? It raises all sorts of other metaphysical questions about, you know, time and explanation. And yeah, so that 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 opens up yeah. a lot of other kind of follow-up questions i'm guessing yeah i mean i i would imagine probably most people when they think about this just the first time they think god's omniscient and i think probably most people would would have that intuition your most average church-going person would say yes god's omniscient he knows everything and he knows the future infallibly so so i think just on a general intuitive level without getting in all the the details in the weeds the problem seems to me pretty natural and intuitive and there's a lot of force behind it. And at least for me, like you said, depending on how you take freedom, maybe it won't be uh, 
as worrisome <laughs> as it could be to, <laughs> to, uh, to some others. So maybe walk me through some of the responses uh, to the dilemma of freedom and foreknowledge. We don't have to camp out on all of them um, in explicit detail or anything. I know, like, for example, Linda Zegzebski, she's been on your podcast before. Uh, she's awesome. She's got a whole book dedicated to this dilemma. Um, and she kind of walks through a couple of the options and presents her own, I guess, twist on one of them. So maybe tell me the ones that you think are most interesting or or maybe most influential. Yeah. Yeah, good. So when... Uh, and thanks for the shout out for the free will show. Um, I appreciate it. When we interviewed uh, Linda Zegzebski, it was like, I think that was our third uh, interview that we did. So it's been a couple of years now, but um, she laid out the the dilemma. It looks like, you know, freedom and foreknowledge, maybe they're incompatible with each other. So you have to choose one or the other. That's the sort of dilemma. Um, she mentioned and explained and talked about some problems for three different kind of historically significant responses. So one, and I think this one is one that maybe might occur to a lot of your listeners right away, sometimes called the Boethian response, sometimes called the uh, Thomistic response. Um, it goes by a lot of names because lots of people in the history of Christian thought have thought God's outside of time, and maybe that helps um, to solve the problem. In fact, I think you know, people like even like C.S. Lewis, I think, appeal to that kind of idea uh, to try to preserve uh, free will. Uh, so that's one idea is like, so God's outside of time. He's atemporal. And given that, it's not quite right that a thousand years ago he believed that I would you know be talking to you now. Right. Because, well, God has never been in time. Right. Not, so he wasn't in time a thousand years ago to have this kind of foreknowledge. Instead, God timelessly knows or timelessly knew, but he's sort of always from his timeless realm, timeless present, um, known what will happen at all times. So the idea there is supposed to be, I mean, we don't have to go into the whole, you know, argument for the incompatibility of freedom and foreknowledge, but one of the reasons that it seems like there's a tension or an incompatibility, you know, more strongly between them is because if God's beliefs in the past, um, kind of, if, if he believed that we would have this conversation now a thousand years ago, those beliefs are, are part of the past and the past seems over and done with or fixed. Sometimes people use the language of um, temporally necessary or accidentally necessary. Um, if, you know, God had that belief a thousand years ago, it seems like there's nothing I could do about it now. But if he's infallible, he can't be wrong. It seems like that guarantees in a way that I have no control over uh, that we'll be having this conversation now. But, and this is the Boethian move, if God's outside of time, well, you don't have this worry about his knowledge being sort of in this past, you know, fixed outside of our control realm, this time realm. Um, so I think that's an interesting response. It's one that's, you know, historically significant. Um, you know, Augustine talks about God's relationship to time and takes that, I you know, takes seriously the idea that God's outside of time. Um, Boethius uses the move to solve this problem, freedom before knowledge. Other people invoke it here, but maybe don't, you know, maybe they think if God's, um, this maximally perfect being, then he's going to be outside of time anyway. So you kind of get free will for free. Um, anyway, my, my view on that is that, um, I think it's not incoherent that God's outside of time. In fact, 
you know, I, I would say God, God is outside of time. And I think that is part of what it is to be a perfect being. I think when you interviewed Roger, I think he had objections to the view that God is outside of time. Um, I think there's things that can be said in response to, to objections to the view, even though it's a very difficult doctrine. It's like hard to make sense of. And a lot of people initially find it puzzling. But my view is that even if it's right that God's outside of time, as I think it is, that doesn't help to solve this problem because by itself, you know, it looks like you can run a, a kind of parallel argument where it's like, well, if God timelessly knows that I'm going to have this conversation with you, it seems like that's no more under my control than, you know, God's knowing in the past that we'd have this conversation. Um, that's a point that Zygzebski makes and um, has developed in, in the book you mentioned, uh, Dilemma, Freedom and Foreknowledge from 1991. And uh, I think it's right. Now, I think there's something to be said in defense of Boethianism um, in response to this objection from Zygzebski and in response to some other objections too. Um, Jonathan Edwards had some famous objections to this move to try to save free will. Um, but I think as soon as the the Boethian or the you know timelessness theorist, the atemporalist, as soon as they start responding to objections they have to start appealing to this notion of dependence that I alluded to earlier. They have to start saying, oh, the reason that the timeless realm uh, doesn't kind of isn't like the past or it doesn't constrain your freedom, God's beliefs in that timeless realm, is because, well, God has his timeless knowledge because he looks at all the times and sees what happens. Right? There's a dependence of what God believes timelessly on what happens. But and maybe we can talk about this some. Uh, that really is just another way of developing the dependence response to the problem. It's just in this mode where you say that God's outside of time rather than in time. So on my view, you know, it might be, and I think it is right that God's outside of time, but to, to really preserve free will in response to this argument, you'd have to appeal to this notion of dependence. And then it's not really God's timelessness that's doing the work in responding to the problem. So to me that as a response, um, yeah, this sort of, this, this, the Boethian sort of, you know, presents this irrelevant, um, you know, feature or, or doctrine about God's relationship to time. Yeah. I don't know. Did you have any follow-up thoughts on no, that? No, I, I mean, I think the Boethian one is the one that I heard most often, especially when I first became a Calvinist. I mean, all I cared about was free will. And that seemed to be like the common objection to more of a reformed sort of uh, thinking on free will was the Boethian one. So I remember always being like, ah, angry against it, even though, <laughs> like, I don't know why I'd be angry. Um, but, you know, young and full of too much testosterone, I guess. Um, you, you mentioned Edwards. So it's interesting. I, I, I know you're not a theologian, so you can punt this if you want, if you haven't done enough research on it. But I, I hear all the time people looking to Edwards on his... And I can't even remember the name of that the the work now, but it's like one of the first volumes in that huge set on on his novel approach to freedom. I guess where he has this develops this distinction between natural ability and moral ability, um, where I guess our natural ability remains intact after the fall, but our moral ability is sort of like fractured after the fall, and therefore that sort of explains. Um, problems and puzzles and free will uh, depending i don't know how much you know on edwards but people are going to say edwards ends up taking like a super hard deterministic 
um, fatalistic line or a he's brilliant and provides a solution to all of our issues. <laughs> Where do you see him fitting in the different ways to categorize this issue of free will and uh, the problem of foreknowledge? Yeah, I guess I, I haven't read enough Edwards to know exactly how to answer for sure. Um, in the context of the freedom and foreknowledge issue, I know he presses the the, the Boethian to say, you know, look, h- how is it that God's being outside of time is going to help if, you know, God very well could, and maybe in some cases has, you know, entered into time or spoken into time by a prophet or something like this to foretell <laughs> what will happen in the future. Right? If God can do that, like, how are you free, right? Like, I mean, if you thought that God's having knowledge in time was a threat to your your subsequent freedom, like how is God's being outside of time going to save the you know save free will if God could just you know have prophet say what will yeah. happen or you know inscribe it in stone? And interestingly, um, some philosophers in the last twenty or thirty years, uh, David Whitaker and Peter Van Inwagen, have developed those kinds of objections to the the Boethian move, which that's interesting. They're drawing from the, you know, the same kinds of objections as Edwards. Um, the, where I disagree with Edwards, even though I think I agree with him on, on kind of a lot. Um, I may, maybe not. I mean, he has a lot of strange <laughs> views in his theology and in his philosophy. And, uh, yeah, I don't know how much I really agree with anyway. Uh, one thing I do disagree with him on is it, it seems like his view of, uh, free will. And, you know, I'm not sure, maybe this is what he means by natural ability um, that's left intact, you know, after the fall. Um, it seemed like his view of free will was basically the view of like Hobbes and uh, Hume, the classical compatibilists who thought that um, to have free will is just to be able to do what you want, right? So if you want to do this, you can do it. If you wanted to do this instead, you could do it. Um, it's a kind of conditional analysis of freedom and ability. And um, this is where I think work in the 20th century, especially in the in the 60s and um, decades following, um, has shown that you, you can't really not unless you really, really tinker with the view, that simple kind of classical view um, is, is subject to too many counterexamples. It looks like you're going to have to make it more nuanced than that. And in that same time period, you get people like um, Harry Frankfurt and then others kind of showing that it seems like maybe it doesn't really matter whether we need the freedom to do otherwise anyway. What matters is like what actually leads to the action that you do. Um, so you have these alternative conceptions of freedom and, it, and its relationship to moral responsibility developed at the same time. So that's kind of where I am. I, I, I tend to go more in that um, sometimes called the source compatibilist or semi-compatibilist direction following Frankfurt. And I tend to disagree with people like Edwards who emphasize leeway or the, the ability to do otherwise, even in that really, you know, limited sense, a sense that's, you know, compatible with even causal determinism or um, theological determinism. So I think the second biggest segment of our listeners are probably going to fall into uh, Molinist-ish camp. So I would say like Reformed, Calvinistic-ish is number one, and then probably that second one is a lot of Molinists. How is their understanding of this dilemma distinct from the Boethian approach and what maybe is better than Boethian what's worse like what walk me through that a little bit yeah 
I guess I'm one of these people, and I follow Zygzebski on this, and also you know John Fisher and and others who think uh, Molinism, it you know, and its appeal to the um, doctrine of middle knowledge, which we don't need to get into the details here. If your listeners are Molinists, they already know all this anyway. But uh, Molinism is an account of how God could know the future and how God could have providential control over the world. But it, insofar as it's committed to the reality of free will and the reality of free will in an incompatibilist uh, sense, sometimes called libertarian free will, uh, where free will is incompatible with causal determinism, uh, Molinism just takes it for granted that we that we do have uh, freedom, and it doesn't say where the dilemma freedom and foreknowledge goes wrong. It just says it it must. Right. So really, the Molinist is committed to some other response to the problem of uh, freedom and foreknowledge. And then the Molinism steps in after you've already got a solution to that problem and says, OK, so they're not incompatible. And now here's how it works. <laughs> right. Um, so that's how I see Molinism. It's like you've got to already think that either like Occamism is true or maybe some version of the dependence view or something like that. And then you say, OK, now Molinism can help me explain how all this works and how God has you know, more control than on competing models of providence. Right? Maybe not quite as much as if he were determining everything on the kind of Calvinistic view, but more control than certainly an open theist can have where God doesn't know the, the future, um, or even a simple foreknowledge view where um, God knows the future, but he doesn't have this middle knowledge. And so he can't sort of, you know, choose in light of his knowledge of how people would freely behave in all these different possible circumstances. So you mentioned Occam. Let's talk about Occam. Uh, you know, he's got, a, I guess, a unique view on all this. So just sketch me the, the background of it and then possible issues, nuances, those sort of things. Yeah. So Occam, yeah, his work on this is is really interesting. One, because he gives some terminology that becomes influential in describing the problem. So one term I referred to earlier, accidental necessity. I don't think it was original to him, but he's, he used this term, um, you know, uh, necessity per accidents and made it famous in developing the problem. And the idea is like, he's taking seriously the idea that once something has really happened, once it's really in the past, it's over and done with, there's nothing you can do about it now. And so if God's beliefs are like that, they're part of the past that's, really happened it's that it's over and done with then uh yeah it seems like uh you know you're being able to do otherwise if it would require god to have a different belief you, you lost your freedom right um so the move that akka makes uh to try to preserve the you know accidental necessity of the past right fixity of the past and yet try to rescue free will is to say well there's the past and then there's the past there are two different kinds of facts about the past. There's what's now called the hard past or the hard facts about the past. And then there are also soft facts about the past. And the, the hard past, the hard facts about the past, those, they're fixed. Nothing you can do about that now. You got to hold that fixed when you're thinking about whether you're free to do otherwise. But then when it comes to these soft facts about the past, they don't likewise constrain our freedom. We shouldn't hold them fixed when assessing what agents can can't do. Okay, so what's what's that distinction? Well, it's helpful, I think, to start with examples. So I had pizza for lunch today. Uh, 
that's a hard fact about you know one one p.m. Central Time today. I was I was eating pizza then. Um, you know, I I maybe I wish I hadn't had that pizza for break for for lunch, or maybe I you know, you know, I think now. Oh, it'd be great if I like had swapped that out for something else. There's nothing I can do about that now, right? Whatever happened, happened. Uh, to quote Lost, that's a, that's the episode, the title of an episode of Lost, one of my favorite uh, TV programs. One that I've I've seen that Taylor. Just just so you know, I've seen nice. Lost. I know about Lost. I know you gave me crap about yeah. the, what's the. I still haven't watched <laughs> it. That Trenton Merrick's mentioned uh, the Good Place. That's right. Okay, yeah. so it. When I listened to that interview, I texted you and said, you really need to watch The Good Place, but uh, you still haven't. I haven't. I'm a failure. So sorry to derail it. (laughs) There's still time. There's still time. (laughs) Okay. Well, you watched Lost. Um, There's an interesting connection there. Uh, The the writers of The Good Place were really big fans of Lost and took a lot of inspiration from Lost. So you might like it. Maybe I would. Check it out. Lost is so fascinating, but it's also infuriating at points because it's like I just want to have some sort of solution and like closure, and I never felt like I got mm-hmm. it. But yeah, well, that's a whole nother episode. <laughs> but uh, happy to come back on to talk about the virtues yeah. of Lost if you ever want to. Anyway, they accept the fixity of the past and tell an interesting time travel story that kind of plays on that idea. Anyway, so Occam says, yeah, that. <laughs> He would like Lost. They're, they're right. And uh, so nothing I can do now about having had pizza for breakfast today. So for, for lunch. So if my doing otherwise right now, then talking to you would require that I have had something different for lunch today. I'm not free to do otherwise. Okay. But then there are other facts about the past that don't seem so over and done with, that don't seem like they're um, really all about the past. And so one of these would be like, you know, I had pizza for lunch today, um, you know, eight-ish hours before talking to you or before saying this sentence or before making this choice that I'm making now, right? Um, grammatically, that looks like it's about, you know, the earlier time, you know, what I had for lunch today. But look, I've snuck in there some extra stuff that wasn't really about my my lunch. It was about the relationship or the relation, I should say, between that time and a subsequent time, like our having this conversation now, uh, much later. So that fact about uh, the past isn't really all about the past. And for that reason, it doesn't look like it's over and done with and fixed and outside of my control in the same way, right? Because, you know, if suppose it is a fact that I, you know, had lunch you know, eight hours before we talked, you know, it could have very well been that I still had lunch at the same time, still had pizza at that time, but yet I decided to not join this call or that I decided to join late or something like that. That was still open to me. So, you know, some other temporally relational fact would have been a fact other than this one about the pizza lunch eight hours before the conversation. Um, But that doesn't seem like, I mean, the fact that some other temporally relational fact would have been a fact, that doesn't seem to be outside of my control. That actually seems to be inside my control. Or you might even compare a case where it's it's like an explicit statement about the future. So some people think that there are truths about what will happen in the future. I'm one of those people. Um, I think it was true at 1 p.m. today that we'd be having this conversation now. But look, 
if it was true at 1 p.m. that we'd be having this conversation now, could we have done otherwise? Well, I would have had to have changed the past, right? What was true then would have had to have been false. That doesn't look like a real threat to freedom, though. That looks like fatalist trickery, <laughs> to borrow a term from uh, David Lewis. That doesn't look like it. Con- so the idea is, Occam wants to say, some things that might look like facts about the past and things that you need to hold fixed, you know, they're not really all about the past, and so they don't actually constrain freedom. Now, that's all well and good, and, I, you know, lots of people think, okay, yeah, there's that distinction, and maybe that's why, like, arguments for logical fatalism don't work. But when it's God and it's his knowledge about the future, is it that kind of temporally relational fact? Are, are we supposed to be taking God's beliefs or God's knowledge about the future to be temporally relational in the same way as like, you know, true propositions about the future being true, or, you know, my having lunch eight hours before this conversation? It looks like whether God had a belief or not, if he's in time, as the alchemist sort of takes for granted, uh, if God's in time and it was at time, you know, was in time a thousand years ago, he either had the belief or he didn't. And that doesn't in any way, that's not a temporally relational kind of state of affairs. So the initial challenge for the alchemist is to say, is to figure out how exactly to specify this distinction between uh, hard and soft facts such that one, it's plausible and two, God's beliefs about the future are going to be plausibly construed as soft and so not kind of over and done with. And yeah, it's it's been hard to figure that out. And that's why, you know, earlier I mentioned alchemism and it's having its heyday in the 80s. There were lots of proposals uh, for how to work out that, um, you know, criterion for what counts as a soft fact in particular. And, you know, some of the most popular, uh, you know, criteria that were given were then counterexampled. <laughs> so there, there's all this back and forth. And it's not clear that any uh, sort of obvious candidate survived that whole uh, heyday of the discussion of alchemism. Um, and more recently, a lot of people have thought that, well, to really make sense of, you know, this temporally relational idea, you've got to have something like God's past beliefs depending on these uh, future actions of ours in order for them not to be fixed. But then it looks like we're kind of moving away from the way that Occam initially envisioned the response. And it's it's more of this dependence response uh, that I've mentioned several times already. So before I go to this dependence response, uh, are there any contemporary Occamists still out there trying to defend the view? That's a good question. Um we're going to have an episode on it in this uh, current season of the Free Will Show, which we're dedicating to the problem of freedom and foreknowledge. Um, but we're not having an alchemist come on for the Occam episode. Uh, and I'm not sure who who we might have invited. I mean, I'm, I feel bad because maybe we're forgetting somebody and surely there there is some alchemist out there. Um, but the, the sort of famous proponent of the uh, view was Alvin Plantinga in a paper from the 1980s called On Occam's Way Out, which often gets anthologized with um, the Nelson Pike essay yeah. developing the problem of you know freedom and foreknowledge. So a lot of people are familiar with it, even if there aren't a whole lot of um, kind of contemporary proponents of the, of the response. Cool. So now to the, the dependence sort of example, the way you explained it there just at the end, 
made me start thinking, okay, if God's beliefs are dependent upon our future reactions, that seems to violate a pretty fundamental maxim for those who want to hold to a more traditional version of theism where God's aseity would say he is dependent on nothing. Mm-hmm. So I submit that as a question as we discuss this. <laughs> How is that resolved yeah. in this sort of model of thinking? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. And I, I think that is a, a potential challenge. Although I think a lot of the proponents of the dependence response are just fine with uh, giving up the strong view of aseity that would sort of rule out that kind of dependence. But maybe we can come back to that. Um, the view kind of has two key components. One is that God's beliefs about the future, or at least about future uh, human actions that are going to turn out to be free actions. Uh, his his beliefs depend on those things. So, um, yeah, God knew a thousand years ago that we'd be having this conversation. Um, but it's not because God knew that that we're having this conversation. Rather, the, it's the other way around. God um, has that knowledge a thousand years ago, had it a thousand years ago, uh, because we're having this conversation. That idea is very old. Um, Origin of Alexandria has something base has a quote, you know, that's widely cited in the in this literature along those lines, and uh, lots of other people say something like that. Uh, sometimes it's kind of run together with the idea that uh, God's foreknowledge doesn't cause or kind of bring about our actions. Um, but yeah, we could just talk about what explains what or what depends on what, and uh, yeah, that's the idea. So first claim is that. God's knowledge um, depends on the future, or at least some of it does. And then the other thing, and this is how it's supposed to preserve free will, is when it comes to assessing whether a person was free to do otherwise than what they actually did, we shouldn't hold fixed any facts that depend on what the person does. So, um, you know, if here's a, like a really simple case, right? If I watch you sort of deliberate about something, make a choice and then perform some action, right? Um, my seeing you do the action sort of guarantees that you're going to do it or guarantees that you're doing it, I should say. Right. Um, like it sort of, you know, my, my seeing you do it implies that you are doing it. Um, but of course, that's because I'm watching you do it. And the explanation for my awareness of you're doing it is you're doing it. So it seems like my watching doesn't take away any of your control or freedom in doing the thing you do. Now, the idea is that, well, even for things like God's past beliefs that um, are dependent on what you do, but also are back there in the past, um, those shouldn't be held fixed when we're assessing what you're free to do. So there's, I think there's a move here that's kind of parallel to the Occamus move, Right. There's like there's the past and then there's the past. Right. Typically, you know, the past is over and done with and we can't do anything about that. But according to the dependence response, if there's, you know, bits of the past that depend on the future relative to those past times, well, then those things aren't really over and done with in the same sense. They're not fixed. If, you know, if they depend on what you do now, well, then it's up to you what the past was like. At least that's a natural way of construing this sort of dependence view. And so when it comes to God's foreknowledge in particular, right, God believed a thousand years ago that we'd be having this conversation. Does that mean we had to have it? It was necessary? You know, we didn't have free will. 
Well, according to the dependence theorists, no, because God's foreknowledge depends on what we'll do. And, you know, if, if, if that's the case, then we shouldn't hold his foreknowledge fixed in assessing what we're free to do. It's sort of like the dependence response says, if you thought you had free will uh, without taking into account divine foreknowledge, if you thought we freely decided to have this conversation now then adding God's foreknowledge into the picture is similar to adding in my awareness of you're doing some action, right? It's like, it's not the kind of thing that adding it to the picture really um, adds a worry or threatens freedom. Okay, so that's the dependence response. As you said, that you know, there's this worry that if you think God is not dependent on creation at all, he's, um, you know, or you hold a strong view of aseity, it might look like, well, how is God's knowledge or any kind of aspect of God going to be dependent on any part of creation. Um, yeah, I guess I might think that is a big worry for the defense response. Um, but like I said, I think proponents of the response want to have, they're, they're at least okay with having this idea that um, or they're, they're, they're okay with weakening the notion of aseity so that, you know, at least given God's free decision to create human beings, you know, his, his knowledge of what they'll freely do is going to depend on what they do or something like that. Um, now this isn't to say that they like, they exist, um, you know, before, you know, God's decision to create or that they exist, uh, independently of, uh, of the divine will or that they have the same kind of, um, necessary existence as God. So there's, there's lots that you could still say, um, you know, in, in defense of God's aseity, even holding fixed that or taking into account this idea that, um, God, at least for his foreknowledge of free human actions is, uh, you know, is going to be in some sense dependent on the creation. So I, I think there's still some things you could say there. Okay. So, now, I think, I mean, we haven't covered every view that's possibly out there. I mean, uh, yeah. when it comes to your own preferred view, what's your model for thinking through this issue? Yeah, so I guess I think it's a the dilemma, like formulated as an argument for the incompatibility of free will in this sense and divine foreknowledge. I think it's a really good argument. In fact, most days I think it's a sound argument and you know, the freedom to otherwise really is incompatible with, um, divine foreknowledge. Um, so a lot of my work has kind of centered around critical assessment of these other ways of trying to, you know, respond to the problem. So, you know, the Boethian, the Occamist, the Molinist, you know, the dependence response and so forth. There are a couple other kind of popular responses that I haven't written on. Um, one is the idea that the argument is, is sound and yet, um, it still really matters that we have libertarian free will. This is a kind of sourcehood view, but it, that's libertarian as opposed to my compatibilist uh, view. You know, open theists also accept this argument and think it's a real dilemma. You got to pick free will. And so you have to give up the notion of, div of divine foreknowledge that we started with where God has exhaustive knowledge of the future. And if you think that like, the future is open. Maybe you're a presentist and you think there aren't really truths about the future and, and so forth. You might think, well, that's not really that even, that's so much of a cost, right? That like, it's not like there's stuff to know that God doesn't know. It's not like he's not omniscient. It's just, there are fewer truths than we initially kind of supposed. 
Now, it does get you, and I, I do think this is a problem for open theism, it does mean God has a lot less uh, control and takes more risks in, um, in his dealings with creation. Um, but that's sort of more of a theological concern with the open theist response. So what's left? Um, there's the sort of Edwards-type view that we alluded to earlier where, well, yeah, if if what matters is just that you would have done otherwise if you had chosen or something like that, that classical compatibilist model, well, divine foreknowledge isn't going to be a threat to that. But you might think, like me, that no, what matters is something other than the freedom to do otherwise that's called into question by this argument. And uh, so what matters is something like um, that we're the actual source of our, our actions in a way that might not require the freedom to do otherwise. So, yeah, a lot of my work has been kind of just critically engaging with the other views. Um, but I, I think that doing so is it's not just interesting for its own sake as a kind of, you know, a kind of intellectual exercise or, you know, historically interesting exercise. But also because no matter which views you're, you're talking about, you're going to be as you saw your like first follow-up question today kind of indicated this, you're already talking about issues in the philosophy of time issues having to do with, you know, what exists, which times exist issues about dependence, right? All these fun and interesting issues in other areas of philosophy, or at least other areas of metaphysics. So um, I think it's a great debate just for kind of exploring other topics in philosophy. And it's one that's, you know, it's it's one that's initially gripping because, you know, people have thought about it. If you if you've thought about God and Him knowing the future, you've thought about freedom and foreknowledge. Um, and so it's a kind of it's a great gateway uh, into other issues in philosophy. I also think this is something I want to think more about. I've I've been reading about it a little bit recently, and it, it's related to some of the stuff on Jonathan Edwards that came up. Um, it might be that divine foreknowledge and the freedom to do otherwise are incompatible as I tend to think, but that it's not because of the foreknowledge that we wouldn't have free will. If God does have this kind of, you know, comprehensive foreknowledge, but rather because foreknowledge requires something like God's causing everything that happens or there, everything's being causally determined. It might be that like, it wouldn't make sense for divine foreknowledge to restrict freedom without there being something that's, causally relevant in the background um and so it seems like edwards had that idea uh you know centuries ago um and not everyone agrees with it now um but there's some interesting work being done on that um you know there's a recent paper i think it's forthcoming right now by um, patrick todd on exactly that problem i think it's called four dollars requires determinism or something very simple like that um but that's i think a really cool and interesting kind of place where the debate might continue to evolve yeah. um, if it hasn't evolved enough yeah. already, right? <laughs> well, that's super interesting. So uh, I want to ask one last question that's not totally related to the topic. So we have probably a good segment of listeners who are in that student sort of phase. Um, do you have any advice for those who are aspiring philosophers or philosophically inclined sort of theologians as they complete their studies, just, I mean, it could be, I'm leaving this pretty wide open. So maybe it's something that you learned in your own um, studies from a supervisor or from a mentor or something, or 
just something in general? Well, do you have any advice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's there are good resources out there on advice for people either thinking about you know graduate school in philosophy or um, you know what to do after graduate school in philosophy or how to you know prepare for uh, academic jobs and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I guess one that would apply across the board. One piece of advice would I think would be to just uh, read very widely and. Um, it can be tempting to, you know, to have your pet project or this one topic that you're interested in and uh, to read a few papers or even some books and then maybe like a few things that you see getting cited from time to time. And you might know this like little corner of a literature um, very well even, but it might be that like there are resources that should be brought to bear on that that you wouldn't get if you weren't reading uh, more and more widely, um, even in other areas of philosophy that you're you're not you know you haven't taken courses in and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I think reading widely is is just helpful. It also helps you when it comes time to you know teach a bunch of classes that's you know that aren't going to be just your pet project. Um, I say that as advice, but also I think I've actually only really taken that advice fully as I've been teaching more and more, which forces you to to read a little bit more widely. Um, yeah. And I would say maybe one other piece of advice would be just to, you know, reach out to, um, I mean, if you're already in a graduate program, you probably already have a a mentor person, but to get very specific advice from, from that person about your situation and, um, what things look like after that. Um, you know, in, in my case, um, I, I had I was very fortunate, even as an undergraduate, but definitely as a graduate student in two different programs, to um, have um, excellent, you know, advisors who were not only great scholars and people I wanted to work with because I was reading all their, you know, books and papers, but were great mentors and give, gave very practical advice. Um, but I, I guess one of the things that I think um, was beneficial for me was reading articles that were coming out. Uh, like year to year during graduate school. Like I would just, you know, you can go to journal websites, say like, you know, mind or philosophical studies, or, you know, probably a lot of your listeners are already paying attention to faith and philosophy, but you can subscribe to like get table of contents emailed to you over email or, you know, notifications when something is forthcoming and you can be reading these papers, assuming you have access to, you know, interlibrary loan or something like this, cause you're not going to pay <laughs> to get all these papers. Uh, uh, you can get them legally uh, and for free if you have, you know, institutional access. Uh, you can read these as they're coming out and one, you'll be clued into what's going on and what's kind of the cutting edge you know, what are the cutting edge issues in your area? But two, you at least this is how I think I learned. You'll learn how to write articles that, um, you know, engage with the literature, but also aren't just literate, like literature reviews that like make an interesting point, um, uh, but do so in a kind of succinct way. You get that just from reading and kind of picking up on the way that the, the norms of writing these kinds of articles. So especially if you're trying to publish things, which is often, unfortunately, I think a necessary requirement for doing academic work right after graduate school, you know, you're, you're going to want to be writing a lot, dedicating time to writing. And um, I would say don't 
don't write so much that you're not reading up on things that are coming out, you know, as you're dissertating and going on the job market and that sort of thing. Awesome. Well, that's super helpful. So thank you for giving us that. And as a reminder, all you guys who are listening, he's got the Free Will Show, so you can go find that on any podcast that you're on. Uh, Taylor also has a website, taylorwseer.com, C-Y-R. And, I mean, if you're listening, you can see his name, how to spell it. But there's a W in there. And that's got all of this stuff, you know, teaching, research, other media, all that, all that kind of cool stuff is on there. So go check that out. Um, keep up with his work because I think, at least for me, there's just not a lot of sort of reform, sort of philosophers in the world, and we need more of these guys. So let's promote each other and encourage one another uh, um, to, to continue on and to be defending forth. Uh, the beautiful reformed faith. So thanks Taylor for, for joining us. This has been fun. Um, and as always for everybody who's been listening, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.